Hi, I'm Kevin Alvis with Big Talk Podcasts. I believe that everyone needs to treat themselves for a job well done. Whether it's surviving a workday jam-packed with mind-numbing meetings or that five-mile bike ride down the lake with your friends, nothing says, I fucking crushed this like a delicious cold beer. And there's no finer place to treat yourself than Chicago's northernmost taproom, Howard Street Brewing. Just steps from the Howard Street Red Line, Howard Street Brewing offers a cozy 37-seat taproom that's perfect for catching up with old friends or making some new ones. And don't let their one-barrel system fool you. It's perfectly pumping out a rotating menu of amazing beers like Rogers Proud Pale Ale, the Better Late Than Never Pilsner, and the This Is What Happens Larry Belgian Saison. Not sure what to try? Get a flight. Try them all. Like that beer and want some for the after party? Grab a few growlers for the road. You want some sweet merch with your beers? They've got hats and t-shirts ready for you too. So if you're in Chicago or planning a trip to Chicago, be sure to check out Howard Street Brewing. Open Tuesday through Sunday. No cash, cards only. Oh, and did I mention that there's entertainment every Tuesday night and trivia every Wednesday night? Oh, 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 and did I mention that you can have food from all the local spots delivered right to your table? Oh, 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 and did I mention that they're pet friendly? This place is the shit. So check out Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago and at howardstreetbrewing.com. Be sure to tell them Big Talk sent ya. Welcome to Based on a True Story, where Chicago's best writers and storytellers take their true personal stories and adapt them into wild tales of fiction. Recorded live the fourth Tuesday of every month at Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Our first story comes from actor, writer, and Chicago native, Johnny Moran. So for the first time that I leave the U.S. to travel abroad, I am 25. My best friend, Paulie, the guy I went to high school with, neighborhood guy from the South Side, had done well for himself. Made a great living in garbage. He was the guy who drove the truck that has the hose to suck out all the poo and the pee and porta potties. <laughs> Believe it or not, at 25, he was making six figures. Because of that, he got a taste of travel and was hooked. He proposed that he, I, and all 10 of our good buddies travel to Western Europe. The goal was to visit Amsterdam. At the time, Amsterdam might as well have been Atlantis or some mythical place that once only existed in legend. Thanks to a morning radio DJ that we all loved, man Cal Muller, and his trip to Amsterdam and all the mayhem that ensued, we were hooked. What other place on the planet could you go where you could smoke weed in public, drink at all hours of the day, and hook up with hookers without anyone batting an eye? When you're a 25-year-old single dude from the South Side, there are no higher aspirations. Paulie was the orchestrator of all this. He created an itinerary, bought a dozen tickets, made connecting plans with Eurorail trains, arrangements for hostels. We were going to hit four countries in 10 days. Fly into Barcelona for three days, travel by train for a day to Paris, take another train for a day in Cologne, Germany, and then end with five days in Amsterdam. And it would fall on St. Patrick's Day. Fucking epic. <laughs> Paulie lined up a limo to take us to O'Hare. Six of us would be on one flight. The other guys would meet us there on a connect different connector. Could not have been more excited. I had not been on a vacation for five years by then. It was my first time outside of the States since I was 10 years old when my folks took us to visit family in England and Ireland. I wanted to soak up the history, the sights, the food. But mostly, I wanted to be a rock star, asshole, jag-off American tourist who puts themselves and others in harm's way just for the sake of amusement. 
The flight took us to Amsterdam to make a connecting flight to Barcelona. We landed and were sitting in the airport and glanced at the news. A breaking news story had, was happening. A bomb had gone off in a commuter train in Madrid. 180 people were killed. I briefly put down my Bloody Mary out of respect for those innocent victims. Such a tragedy. But then my buddy got us shots, and I thought, fuck it, I'm an American. I, we got slosh waiting for our flight. Because in Europe, you can buy booze anywhere. <laughs> the fucking newspaper stands have bottles of Jägermeister on display. The coffee shops don't sell coffee, they sell booze. <laughs> My, bought, my buddy bought a bottle of absinthe and said, I'm sneaking this back into the U.S. That's when I knew this wasn't going to be some ordinary trip. Someone was going to jail. <laughs> Later that day, we landed in Barcelona. What an amazing city. A thousand years of history, commingled with the style and excitement of a modern cosmopolitan city. We had a moment in Amsterdam to change into our evening wear. Casual but stylish suits and tuxedos, so we can make a statement as we traipsed down La Ramblas toward our lodgings, only the finest hostel for the most elite of inter international travelers. Upon arriving, we were whisked up to our suites, which consisted of high-end, luxurious, custom, triple-level bunk beds crafted from corrugated steel, towering over us toward the high ceilings. Clearly, any weary traveler had found comfort within these industrial-strength boudoirs. We agreed that since we were going to be in Paris, that we should have our fashionable attire for that leg of the trip. So we stowed our belongings, went with a more casual look, and headed toward the lobby where we could start our journey by connecting with the other young people staying in the hostel. That is when the hand of fate touched each of our shoulders. A young Irishman, looking like a busker or a human trafficker, approached us <laughs> and presented an offer. Tickets to a bar crawl through the streets of Barcelona with a drink included at, e at each place and no cover. 40 euro per person. It took about seven seconds for everyone to say yes. <laughs> and off we went, a mix of men and women from all over the world following a perfect stranger into the streets of Barcelona. The first bar we hit was a nightclub with electronic and music blasting. The subterranean dance hall also featured the sexiest bartender we had ever seen. Not only was she this drop-dead gorgeous Spanish woman, she started performing flare tricks, spinning bottles in the air, setting shots on fire, and taking all of our money. <laughs> the second bar was a heavy metal bar, bathed in this ultraviolet light. The music was aggressive, but the party was still going strong. This place featured a man walking around with a fertilizer sprayer strapped to his back, filled with vodka lemonade. So you would get on one knee, and he would spray the booze into your mouth. And did, we do that, do we, and did we do what any halfway intelligent person would do and ask, hey, how well did you clean this out before using, before using it in this manner? No, of course not. We went back for seconds and thirds. We dragged girls over and cheered as they got hosed. <laughs> Our third stop, a lovely, lively nightclub that was open till 6 in the morning, was where my strength started to dissipate. Standing in line outside, my drunk spidey sense kicked in. This mechanism kicks into operation when, after a few drinks, my body decides, it's time to lay down or get a slice of pizza. Usually it's both. The tr this trigger has more often than not saved me from making big mistakes in the past. However, on this night, it led me to something else entirely. Things became hazy for me. 
And did I do what any American would do in this situation? Grab a friend, let them know my status and concern for our safety, then head back to the hostel so we can get up at a reasonable time and go sightseeing. No, of course not. <laughs> I left my friends and wandered away into a city I'd never been to before. <laughs> I found a cafe bustling with activity, even though I was seeing it through my walleye vision. I entered, and the place, even at 5.30 in the morning, was crackling with energy. The kitchen was an open kitchen with cooks working behind a counter lined on top with a glass case holding dinner plates. Since I was such a snob about food, I needed to get a closer look at what we, they were preparing. I placed my hand on the case and leaned in to decipher the goods. That case then toppled over on top of the cooks and the line, smashing plates everywhere. The cooks began to scream at me in Spanish. And did I do what any tourist with any ounce of respect do, would do in this situation? Apologize profusely, offer to pay for damages, or, or help them clean up? No, of course not! <laughs> I blurted out, oh, I'm so sorry, and headed toward the door. <laughs> the screaming continued as I ran out into the dark, convinced that I had started an international incident. I was going to jail on my first night in Europe. I thought, if I have to fight someone tonight, I'm going to get murdered. I'm probably going to get stabbed, and no one's going to know, and I will be on the news back home. And I ran into the pre-dawn streets. The only people that were out there were sex workers, aggressive sex workers. I turned onto a street where there was a dozen black female sex workers who understood their skill and the value they provided and very much wanted anyone within earshot to know about it. And I did what I, and did I do what any decent person would do? Ask if they were doing well that night. <laughs> Offer a compliment and then politely decline their offers? No, of course not. <laughs> I went right toward them and tried to make out with the most aggressive one of them all. <laughs> I got pushed back, fell down, and they started to move in. I got up and ran <laughs> like a bitch. <laughs> Somehow, I figured out how to get back to the hostel. I passed out for maybe three hours, and when I woke up, I learned that one of my buddies got robbed of his wallet and passport from another sex worker. So, despite all of my best attempts, I still wasn't the biggest asshole of the trip. <laughs> I avoided jail. This time. So the lesson here is, friends, don't trust the Irish. They will lead you into a life-or-death scenario not of your own making, just for their personal gain. <laughs> but seriously, don't be drunk 25-year-old Johnny Moe. He's kind of trash, I'm told. Thank you. This next story comes from actor, writer, comedian, and podcast host Jackie Jarena. This is a story about why ghosts don't like me. <laughs> Every kid who grew up in San Diego went on the same three field trips. The Star of India, which is an old 1800 sailing ship in the harbor that you do a big class sleepover on. Some bullshit hike out in the mountains that takes a fucking hour to get to and you inevitably end up writing haikus for some fucking reason. <laughs> An old town. 
Nestled in the tangled bramble of freeways that make up Southern California in a corner where the eight meets the five, Old Town San Diego is about a city's block worth of gimmicky shops, restaurants, and museums where employees sometimes cosplay as people from the 1800s and walk around. It's basically shitty colonial Williamsburg. <laughs> and on the far south corner is a building called the Whaley House. The Whaley House, if you're unfamiliar, is an old house that's been there since like the 1850s and a bunch of people died there, including two members of the Whaley family, plus a little girl who lived nearby who apparently broke her neck in the garden, and some guy named Yankee Jim who stole a boat and was hung on the property. I really don't know what happened with that one. <laughs> As a result, the Whaley House has been called the most haunted house in America, specifically by Life magazine in 2005. This is where our story takes place. It was the spring of 2007, I was about 13 years old, and two months from reaching the very important life milestone of finally fucking graduating middle school, Jesus goddamn Christ. <laughs> but not only that, at the end of the summer, my family was picking up and moving from sunny San Diego to Yokosuka, Japan, at the behest of the US Navy. And before you ask, Hi, Nihongo wakarimasu. Mama haga Osaka shushin desu. No, I'm not a weeb. <laughs> so what does this have to do with the Whaley House? The answer lies with my friend Lamar. Lamar, Morgan, and Jesse were just about the only friends I escaped middle school with. A foursome of veritable weirdos and the various thralls of undiagnosed neurodivergency issues, we tended to spend the first period PE class that we shared behind the soccer field, avoiding exercise by throwing a basketball at the brick walls of the outdoor bathrooms while talking about how stupid and disappointing the seventh Harry Potter book was, or how MySpace was out and Facebook was the hot new thing. But our boring lives were about to become a little more interesting. You see, Lamar's older brother was 19 at the time, and he'd skipped out on college to enter the workforce as the night guard at the Whaley House. It was Jesse's idea. And I usually functioned as the reality checker of the group. However, I found that when I reached down to where my 13-year-old sensibilities typically lay, there was instead a giant giving-a-fuck-shaped hole so instead of protesting when Jesse said, you should totally get your brother to let us into the Whaley house after dark so we can see some ghosts, I said, fuck yes, you should. <laughs> so we came up with our alibis. We were all hanging out at Lamar's house and his brother would have us back home by 10.30. We drove down, got told emphatically to not fucking break anything. The doors closed at 8.45, opened back up at 9.15, and we had 45 minutes to fuck around in the Whaley house. Now, this group was not all white kids, but we may as well have been, because the very literal first thing we do is split up. <laughs> Morgan insists that it's the most surefire way for one of us to see a ghost because they would be too skittish to approach us when we're there as a group because ghosts are all cats, I guess. <laughs> So we peel off with our crappy flashlights stolen from various parents' junk drawers and pad around the house as quietly as possible because one of the most common signs of paranormal activity that gets reported at the Whaley house is the sound of heavy footsteps, which is supposed to be Yankee Jim. I still don't know what the fuck his deal is. We were also supposed to listen for the sound of a child's laughter, which is the little girl that broke her neck, and a young woman crying, the daughter who died tragically. The old house 
echoes with the slightest creak as I creep around the Greek Revival-style rooms through the main floors, passing reflections that make my heart seize, and occasionally running into my friends, where we don't talk, but instead just sort of make hand gestures at each other that we had not agreed upon previously. <laughs> so, like, it was anyone's guess what we were saying to each other. Once or twice, I passed a do not enter employees only sign, which inexplicably I obeyed as though I were not already trespassing. And my Skechers sneakers weren't quiet enough to hide my footfalls as I passed through the dining rooms and the library to the courthouse? Seriously, there's a courthouse in there. And a theater. I don't know why. They probably told me on one of those tours that I went on on the field trip, but I don't remember. As I circle back from the theater to the hallway, I don't see any of my friends, so I decide to make my way to the second floor. With an amount of care and trepidation that I can only compare to that feeling when you're blazed as fuck at your parents' house and you're trying to sneak back into your childhood bedroom, <laughs> I tiptoe up the stairs to the landing. From outside, I can hear cars peeling down the freeway, not 200 yards away, but inside, Everything is so quiet, it almost echoes the ghastly hum of nothing in my ears as I pass by various bedrooms and sitting rooms at a dead crawl, too terrified to set foot inside. What I don't hear are the footfalls of scared teenagers. I look around the landing and I don't see any flashlight beams up here and it dawns on me that I'm alone on the second floor. Briefly, I look over the landing to the bottom of the stairs, nothing. And now, the house is no longer judging me. It's sized me up and determined that I am prey. And I turn back from the railing and stare down the hallway, which stretches out ahead of me as though taunting me to reach its end. And I can feel the monstrous silence of the house effervesce off the walls, swirling until I can almost see it open its gaping jaw slowly and inevitably, like the whale waiting for Jonah. The only light other than my flashlight pours in from the window directly in front of me. The window overlooks the street and as I approach I'm hypnotized by that strange mix of colors that you only really get in cities, mostly lamplight, partially moonlight. I chance a glance out the window and I see it. My three fucking friends standing outside. <laughs> Those bitches had left me with the ghosts. And now there is no more silence because now there is the sound of me sprinting out of the house. I run back down the hallway, past all the rooms, down the old creaky stairs and through the parlors, out the foyer and out of that bitch in a blind panic. <laughs> Finally, I make it safely onto the street and back over to my friends. Uh, what the fuck, guys? I ask, understandably a little annoyed. What happened? It's really haunted, I swear, says Lamar. Oh, I heard something, I heard footsteps, says Morgan. I saw the little girl and Zist Jesse, the three of them take turns relaying their experiences to me, elaborating that once they'd encountered their paranormal thing, they had gotten the fuck out of Dodge. And apparently they had been waiting for me for 10 minutes. <laughs> Finally, Jesse turns to me and says, so, did you see anything? <laughs> Fucking no. Not only had they ditched me in a haunted-as-fuck house, they had all seen ghosts, and I hadn't. 
all in all, we had spent maybe 20 of our 40, allotted 45 minutes in the Whaley house, and Lamar's brother drove us back home. Looking, Although looking back, he must really not have given a fuck about that job because he just like left for 30 minutes to <laughs> drop us off. Hats off to you, Felix. You were a real one. <laughs> for years after this, in the throes of teen sensitivities and spiritualisms, my friends would talk about their ghost experiences or swear that they saw a man with a bowler hat in the back of our high school theater, which was built in fucking 2000. <laughs> and I would go along with it. I would try so hard to tune into the beyond, and I would feel so secretly disappointed that I was never truly a part of the magic, like I'd missed my Hogwarts letter all over again. Or worse like I'd read the seventh book again. <laughs> it was only years later, in my early 20s, that I finally figured out the ghosts aren't fucking real. Thank you. If you're interested in performing, send us an email at bigtalkpodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our website at bigtalkchicago.com. And be sure to join us the fourth Tuesday of every month for a live recording at Howard Street Brewing at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Blah, blah, blah. Big talk.